Section 6 of Luther's Large Catechism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Large Catechism by Martin Luther. Translated by F. Benty and W. H. T. Dow. The Fifth, Sixth, and seventh commandments. The fifth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. We have now completed both the spiritual and the temporal government, that is, the divine and the paternal authority and obedience. But here now, we go forth from our house among our neighbours to learn how we should live with one another, every one himself toward his neighbour, Therefore God and government are not included in this commandment, nor is the power to kill, which they have taken away. For God has delegated his authority to punish evildoers to the government, instead of parents, who aforetime, as we read in Moses, were required to bring their own children to judgment and sentence them to death. Therefore, what is here forbidden, is forbidden to the individual in his relation to anyone else and not the government. Now this commandment is easy enough, and has been often treated, because we hear it annually in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5, starting at verse 21, where Christ himself explains and sums it up, namely, that we must not kill, neither with hand, heart, mouth, signs, gestures, help, nor counsel. Therefore it is here forbidden to every one to be angry, except those, as we said, who are in the place of God, that is, parents and the government. For it is proper for God and for every one who is in a divine estate to be angry, to reprove and punish, namely, on account of those very persons who transgress this and the other commandments. But the cause and need of this commandment is that God well knows that the world is evil, and that this life has much unhappiness. Therefore he has placed this and the other commandments between the good and the evil. Now, as there are many assaults upon all commandments, so it happens also in this commandment, that we must live among many people who do us harm, so that we have cause to be hostile to them. As when your neighbour sees that you have a better house and home, a larger family and more fertile fields, greater possessions and fortune from God than he. He is sulky, envies you, and speaks no good of you. Thus by the devil's incitement you will get many enemies who cannot bear to see you have any good, either bodily or spiritual. When we see such people, our hearts, in turn, would rage and bleed and take vengeance. Then there arise cursing and blows, from which follow finally misery and murder. Here now, God, like a kind father, steps in ahead of us, interposes, and wishes to have the quarrel settled, that no misfortune come of it, nor one destroy another. And briefly, he would hereby protect, set free, and keep in peace every one against the crime and violence of every one else, and would have this commandment placed as a wall, fortress, and refuge about our neighbour that we do him no hurt nor harm in his body. Thus this commandment aims at this, 
that no one offend his neighbour on account of any evil deed, even though he have fully deserved it. For where murder is forbidden, all cause also is forbidden whence murder may originate. For many a one, although he does not kill, yet curses and utters a wish which would stop a person from running far if it were to strike him in the neck, makes imprecations which he fulfilled with respect to any one he would not live long. Now since this inheres in every one by nature, and it is a common practice that no one is willing to suffer at the hands of another, God wishes to remove the root and source by which the heart is embittered against our neighbour, and to accustom us ever to keep in view this commandment, always to contemplate ourselves in it as in a mirror, to regard the will of God, and with hearty confidence and invocation of his name, to commit to him the wrong which we suffer. Thus we shall suffer our enemies to rage and be angry, doing what they can, and we learn to calm our wrath, and to have a patient, gentle heart, especially toward those who give us cause to be angry, that is, our enemies. Therefore, the entire sum of what it means not to kill is to be impressed most explicitly upon the simple-minded. In the first place that we harm no one, first with our hand or by deed, then that we do not employ our tongue to instigate or counsel thereto, further that we neither use nor assent to any kind of means or methods whereby any one may be injured, and finally that the heart be not ill-disposed toward any one, nor from anger and hatred wish him ill, so that body and soul may be innocent in regard to every one, but especially those who wish you evil or inflict such upon you. For to do evil to one who wishes and does you good is not human, but diabolical. Secondly, under this commandment, not only he is guilty who does evil to his neighbour, but he also who can do him good, prevent, resist evil, defend and save him, so that no bodily harm or hurt happen to him, and yet does not do it. If, therefore, you send away one that is naked when you could clothe him, you have caused him to freeze to death. You see one suffer hunger and do not give him food, you have caused him to starve. So also, if you see any one innocently sentenced to death, or in like distress, and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. And it will not avail you to make the pretext that you did not afford any help, counsel, or aid thereto, for you have withheld your love from him and deprived him of the benefit whereby his life would have been saved. Therefore, God also rightly calls all those murderers who do not afford counsel and help in distress and danger of body and life, and will pass a most terrible sentence upon them in the last day, as Christ himself has announced, when he shall say, Matthew chapter 25, verses 42 and 43, I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. That is, 
you would have suffered me and mine to die of hunger, thirst, and cold, would have suffered the wild beasts to tear us to pieces, or left us to rot in prison, or perish in distress. What else is that but to reproach them as murderers and bloodhounds? For although you have not actually done all this, you have nevertheless, so far as you were concerned, suffered him to pine and perish in misfortune. It is just as if I saw someone navigating and labouring in deep water, and struggling against adverse winds, or one fallen into fire, and could extend to him the hand to pull him out and save him, and yet refuse to do it. What else would I appear, even in the eyes of the world, than as a murderer and a criminal? Therefore it is God's ultimate purpose that we suffer harm to befall no man, but show him all good and love, and, as we have said, it is specially directed toward those who are our enemies. For to do good to our friends is but an ordinary heathen virtue, as Christ says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Here we have again the word of God, whereby he would encourage and urge us to true noble and sublime works, as gentleness, patience, and in short, love and kindness to our enemies, and would ever remind us to reflect upon the first commandment, that he is our God, that is, that he will help, assist, and protect us, in order that he may thus quench the desire of revenge in us. This we ought to practice and inculcate, and we would have our hands full doing good works. But this would not be preaching for monks. It would greatly detract from the religious estate, and infringe upon the sanctity of Carthusians, and would even be regarded as forbidding good works, and clearing the convents. For in this wise the ordinary state of Christians would be considered just as worthy, and even worthier, and everybody would see how they mock and delude the world with a false, hypocritical show of holiness, because they have given this and other commandments to the winds, and have esteemed them unnecessary, as though they were not commandments, but mere counsels, and have at the same time shamelessly proclaimed and boasted their hypocritical estate and works as the most perfect life, in order that they might lead a pleasant, easy life, without the cross and without patience, for which reason, too, they have resorted to the cloisters, so that they might not be obliged to suffer any wrong from any one, or to do him any good. But know now that these are the true, holy and godly works, in which, with all the angels, he rejoices, in comparison with which all human holiness is but stench and filth, and besides, deserves nothing but wrath and damnation. The Sixth Commandment Thou shalt not commit adultery. These commandments now that follow are easily understood from the explanation of the preceding, for they are all to the effect that we be careful to avoid doing any kind of injury to our neighbour. But they are arranged in fine, elegant order. In the first place, they treat of his own person. Then they proceed to the person nearest him, or the closest possession next after his body, namely his wife, who is one flesh and blood with him, 
so that we cannot inflict a higher injury upon him in any good that is his. Therefore it is explicitly forbidden here to bring any disgrace upon him in respect to his wife, and it really aims at adultery, because among the Jews it was ordained and commanded that every one must be married. Therefore also the young were early provided for, married, so that the virgin state was held in small esteem. Neither were public prostitution and lewdness tolerated, as now. Therefore adultery was the most common form of unchastity among them. But because among us there is such a shameful mess, and the very dregs of all vice and lewdness, this commandment is directed also against all manner of unchastity, whatever it may be called, and not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, incitement, and means, so that the heart, the lips, and the whole body may be chaste and afford no opportunity, help, or persuasion to unchastity. And not only this, but that we also make resistance, afford protection, and rescue wherever there is danger and need. And again, that we give help and counsel, so as to maintain our neighbour's honour. For whenever you omit this, when you could make resistance, or connive at it as if it did not concern you, you are as truly guilty as the one perpetrating the deed. Thus, to state it in the briefest manner, there is required this much, that every one both live chastely himself, and help his neighbour do the same, so that God by this commandment wishes to hedge round about and protect, as with a rampart, every spouse, that no one trespass against them. But since this commandment is aimed directly at the state of matrimony, and gives occasion to speak of the same, you must well understand and mark, first, how gloriously God honours and extols this estate, inasmuch as by his commandment he both sanctions and guards it. He has sanctioned it above in the fourth commandment, Honour thy father and thy mother. But here he has, as we said, hedged it about and protected it. Therefore he also wishes us to honour it, and to maintain and conduct it as a divine and blessed estate, because in the first place he has instituted it before all others, and therefore created man and woman separately, as is evident, not for lewdness, but that they should legitimately live together, be fruitful, beget children, and nourish and train them to the honour of God. Therefore God has also most richly blessed this estate above all others, and, in addition, has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world, to the end that this estate might be well and richly provided for. Married life is therefore no jest or presumption, but it is an excellent thing and a matter of divine seriousness for it is of the highest importance to him that persons be raised who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of god godly living and all virtues to fight against wickedness and the devil therefore i have always taught that this estate should not be despised nor held in disrepute as is done by the blind world and our false ecclesiastics 
but that it be regarded according to God's word, by which it is adorned and sanctified, so that it is not only placed on any equality with other estates, but that it precedes and surpasses them all, whether they be that of emperor, princes, bishops, or whoever they please. For both ecclesiastical and civil estates must humble themselves, and all be found in this estate, as we shall hear. Therefore, it is not a peculiar estate, but the most common and noblest estate, which pervades all Christendom, yea, which extends through all the world. In the second place, you must know also that it is not only an honourable, but also a necessary state, and it is solemnly commanded by God that, in general, in all conditions, men and women who were created for it shall be found in this estate. Yet with some exceptions, although few, whom God has especially accepted, so that they are not fit for the married estate, or whom he has released by a high supernatural gift that they can maintain chastity without this estate, for where nature has its course, as it is implanted by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood, and the natural inclination and excitement have their course without let or hindrance, as everybody sees and feels. In order, therefore, that it may be the more easy in some degree to avoid unchastity, God has commanded the estate of matrimony that every one may have his proper portion and be satisfied therewith, although God's grace besides is required in order that the heart also may be pure. From this you see how this popish rabble, priests, monks and nuns, resist God's order and commandment, inasmuch as they despise and forbid matrimony, and presume and vow to maintain perpetual chastity, and besides deceive the simple-minded with lying words and appearances in postures, for no one has so little love and inclination to chastity as just those who, because of great sanctity, avoid marriage, and either indulge in open and shameless prostitution, or secretly do even worse, so that one dare not speak of it, as has, alas, been learned too fully. And, in short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste thoughts and evil lusts that there is a continual burning and secret suffering which can be avoided in the married life. Therefore all vows of chastity out of the married state are condemned by this commandment, and free permission is granted, yea, even the command is given, to all poor ensnared consciences which have been deceived by their monastic vows to abandon the unchaste state and enter the married life, considering that even if the monastic life were godly, it would nevertheless not be in their power to maintain chastity, and if they remain in it, they must only sin more and more against this commandment. Now, I speak of this in order that the young may be so guided that they conceive a liking for the married estate, and know that it is a blessed estate, and pleasing to God. For in this way we might in the course of time bring it about that married life be restored to honour, 
and that there might be less of the filthy, dissolute, disorderly doings which now run riot the world over in open prostitution and other shameful vices arising from disregard of married life. Therefore it is the duty of parents and the government to see to it that our youth be brought up to discipline and respectability, and when they have come to years of maturity to provide for them, to have them married, in the fear of God and honourably, he would not fail to add his blessing and grace so that men would have joy and happiness from the same. Let me now say in conclusion that this commandment demands not only that everyone live chastely in thought, word and deed in his condition, that is, especially in the estate of matrimony, but also that everyone love and esteem the spouse given him by God, for where conjugal chastity is to be maintained, man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony, that one may cherish the other from the heart and with entire fidelity, for that is one of the principal points which enkindle love and desire of chastity, so that where this is found, chastity will follow as a matter of course without any command. Therefore also St. Paul so diligently exhorts husband and wife to love and honour one another. Here you have again a precious, yea, many and great good works, of which you can joyfully boast, against all ecclesiastical estates, chosen without God's word and commandment. The Seventh Commandment Thou shalt not steal. After your person and spouse, temporal property comes next. That also God wishes to have protected, and he has commanded that no one shall subtract from or curtail his neighbour's possessions. For to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongfully, which briefly comprehends all kinds of advantage in all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of our neighbour. Now, this is indeed quite a widespread and common vice, but so little regarded and observed that it exceeds all measure, so that if all who are thieves, and yet do not wish to be called such, were to be hanged on gallows, the world would soon be devastated, and there would be a lack both of executioners and gallows. For, as we have just said, to steal is to signify not only to empty our neighbour's coffer and pockets, but to be grasping in the market, in all stores, booths, wine and beer cellars, workshops, and, in short, wherever there is trading or taking and giving of money for merchandise or labour. As, for instance, to explain this somewhat grossly for the common people, that it may be seen how godly we are, when a man-servant or maid-servant does not serve faithfully in the house and does damage or allows it to be done when it could be prevented or otherwise ruins and neglects the goods entrusted to him from indolence idleness or malice to the spite and vexation of master and mistress and in whatever way this can be done purposely for i do not speak of what happens from oversight and against one's will you can in a year abscond thirty, forty florins, which if another had taken secretly or carried away, he would be hanged with a rope. But here you, 
while conscious of such a great theft, may even bid defiance and become insolent, and no one dare call you a thief. The same I say also of mechanics, workmen, and day-labourers, who all follow their wanton notions, and never know enough ways to overcharge people, while they are lazy and unfaithful in their work. All these are far worse than sneak-thieves, against whom we can guard with locks and bolts, or who, if apprehended, are treated in such a manner that they will not do the same again. But against these no one can guard, no one dare even look or eye at them, or accuse them of theft, so that one would ten times rather lose from his purse. For here are my neighbours, good friends, my own servants, from whom I expect good, every faithful and diligent service, who defraud me first of all. Furthermore, in the market and in common trade likewise, this practice is in full swing and force to the greatest extent, where one openly defrauds another with bad merchandise, false measures, weights, coins, and by nimbleness and queer finances or dexterous tricks takes advantage of him. Likewise, when one overcharges a person in a trade and wantonly drives a hard bargain, skins and distresses him, and who can recount or think of all these things? To sum up, this is the commonest craft and the largest guild on earth, and if we regard the world throughout all conditions of life, it is nothing else than a vast, wide stall full of great thieves. Therefore, they are also called swivel-chair robbers, land and highway robbers, not picklocks and sneak-thieves who snatch away the ready cash, but who sit on the chair at home and are styled great noblemen and honourable pious citizens, and yet rob and steal under a good pretext. Yes, here we might be silent about the trifling individual thieves if we were to attack the great powerful arch-thieves with whom lords and princes keep company who daily plunder not only a city or two but all germany yea where should we place the head and supreme protector of all thieves the holy chair at rome with all its retinue which has grabbed by theft the wealth of all the world and holds it to this day this is, in short, the course of the world. Whoever can steal and rob openly goes free and secure, unmolested by anyone, and even demands that he be honoured. Meanwhile, the little sneak-thieves who have once trespassed must bear the shame and punishment to render the former godly and honourable. But let them know that in the sight of God they are the greatest thieves, and that he will punish them as they are worthy and deserve. Now, since this commandment is so far-reaching and comprehensive, as just indicated, it is necessary to urge it well, and to explain it to the common people, not to let them go on in their wantonness and security, but always to place before their eyes the wrath of God, and inculcate the same. For we have to preach this not to Christians, but chiefly to knaves and scoundrels, to whom it would be more fitting for judges, jailers, or master hands the executioner to preach. Therefore let everyone know that it is his duty, at the risk of God's displeasure, not only to do no injury to his neighbour, nor to deprive him of gain, nor to perpetrate any act of unfaithfulness or malice in any bargain or trade, 
but faithfully to preserve his property for him, to secure and promote his advantage, especially when one accepts money, wages, and one's livelihood for such service. He now who wantonly despises this may indeed pass along and escape the hangman, but he shall not escape the wrath and punishment of God, and when he has long practised his defiance and arrogance, he shall yet remain a tramp and beggar, and, in addition, have all plagues and misfortune. Now you are going your way, wherever your heart's pleasure calls you, while you ought to preserve the property of your master and mistress, for which service you fill your crop and more, take your wages like a thief, have people treat you as a nobleman, for there are many that are even insolent towards their masters and mistresses, and are unwilling to do them a favour or service by which to protect them from loss. But reflect what you will gain when, having come into your own property, and being set up in your home, to which God will help with all misfortunes, it, your perfidy, will bob up again and come home to you, and you will find that where you have cheated or done injury to the value of one mite, you will have to pay thirty again. Such shall be the lot also of mechanics and day-labourers, of whom we are now obliged to hear and suffer such intolerable maliciousness as though they were noblemen in another's possessions, and every one were obliged to give them what they demand. Just let them continue practising their exactions as long as they can. But God will not forget his commandment, and will reward them according as they have served, and will hang them, not upon a green gallows, but upon a dry one, so that all their life they shall neither prosper nor accumulate anything. And indeed, if there were a well-ordered government in the land, such wantonness might soon be checked and prevented, as was the custom in ancient times among the Romans, where such characters were promptly seized by the pate in a way that others took warning. No more shall all the rest prosper who change the open free market into a carrion pit of extortion and a den of robbery, where the poor are daily overcharged, new burdens and high prices are imposed, and every one uses the market according to his caprice, and is even defiant and brags as though it were his fair privilege and right to sell his goods for as high a price as he please, and no one had a right to say a word against it. We will indeed look on and let these people skin, pinch and hoard, but we will trust in God." who will, however, do this of his own accord, that after you have been skinning and scraping for a long time, he will pronounce such a blessing on your gains that your grain in the garner, your beer in the cellar, your cattle in the stalls shall perish. Yea, where you have cheated and overcharged any one to the amount of a florin, your entire pile shall be consumed with rust, so that you shall never enjoy it. And indeed, we see and experience this being fulfilled daily before our eyes, that no stolen or dishonestly acquired possession thrives. How many there are who rake and scrape day and night, and yet grow not a farthing richer, and though they gather much, they must suffer so many plagues and misfortunes that they cannot relish it with cheerfulness, nor transmit it to their children 
but as no one minds it, and we go on as though it did not concern us, God must visit us in a different way, and teach us manners by imposing one taxation after another, or billeting a troop of soldiers upon us, who in one hour empty our coffers and purses, and do not quit as long as we have a farthing left, and in addition, by way of thanks, burn and devastate house and home, and outrage and kill wife and children. And, in short, if you steal much, depend upon it that again as much will be stolen from you, and he who robs and acquires with violence and wrong will submit to one who shall deal after the same fashion with him. For God is master of this art, that since every one robs and steals from the other, he punishes one thief by means of another. Else where should we find enough gallows and ropes? Now, whoever is willing to be instructed, let him know that this is the commandment of God, and that it must not be treated as a jest. For although you despise us, defraud, steal, and rob, we will indeed manage to endure your haughtiness, suffer, and according to the Lord's prayer, forgive and show pity. For we know that the godly shall nevertheless have enough, and you injure yourself more than another. But beware of this. When the poor man comes to you, of whom there are so many now, who must buy with a penny of his daily wages, and live upon it, and you are harsh to him, as though every one lived by your favour, and you skin and scrape to the bone, and besides, with pride and haughtiness, turn him off to whom you ought to give for nothing, he will go away wretched and sorrowful, and since he can complain to no one, he will cry and call to heaven, then beware, I say again, as of the devil himself. For such groaning and calling will be no jest, but will have a weight that will prove too heavy for you and all the world. For it will reach him who takes care of the poor sorrowful hearts, and will not allow them to go unavenged. But if you despise this, and become defiant, see whom you have brought upon you, if you succeed and prosper, you may before all the world call God and me a liar. We have exhorted, warned, and protested enough. He who will not heed or believe it may go on until he learns this by experience. Yet it must be impressed upon the young that they may be careful not to follow the old lawless crowd, but keep their eyes fixed upon God's commandment, lest his wrath and punishment come upon them too. It behooves us to do no more than to instruct and reprove with God's word, but to check such open wantonness there is need of the princes and government, who themselves would have eyes and the courage to establish and maintain order in all manner of trade and commerce, lest the poor be burdened and oppressed, nor they themselves be loaded with other men's sins. Let this suffice as an explanation of what stealing is, that it be not taken too narrowly, but made to extend as far as we have to do with our neighbours. And briefly, in a summary as in the former commandments, it is herewith forbidden, in the first place, to do our neighbour any injury or wrong, in whatever manner supposable, by curtailing, forestalling, and withholding his possessions and property, or even to consent or allow such a thing, but to interpose and prevent it, 
and, on the other hand, it is commanded that we advance and improve his possessions, and in case he suffers want, that we help, communicate, and lend both to friends and foes. Whoever now seeks and desires good works will find here more than enough such as are heartily acceptable and pleasing to God, and in addition are favoured and crowned with excellent blessings, that we are to be richly compensated for all that we do for our neighbour's good and from friendship. As King Solomon also teaches, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Here then you have a rich Lord, who is certainly sufficient for you, and who will not suffer you to come short in anything or to want. Thus you can with a joyful conscience enjoy a hundred times more than you could scrape together with unfaithfulness and wrong. Now whoever does not desire the blessing will find wrath and misfortune enough. End of section 6